Hello, this is Lauren Weiner with the WWC podcast, Winning with Connections. I am here with one of my favorite lawyers, uh, Mary Beth Bosco of Holland and Knight. And usually it's not not easy to say uh, that you you love your lawyer, but I will tell you that Mary Beth has been a remarkable asset to us in some really difficult situations. So Mary Beth, welcome to uh, the podcast. Thanks, Lauren. A little bit about me. Um, as Lauren said, I'm a government contracts lawyer. I have been practicing for more years than I'm will that I am willing to acknowledge. So we'll just skip over that. I am with Holland and Knight because I'm a government contracts lawyer. My office is in Washington D.C., but I actually live in St. Petersburg. So I commute back and forth. Well, I used to commute back and forth before COVID. You know, my practice covers all aspects of government contracting, but I work a good deal with small businesses and other companies that are just entering the federal market. So I'm familiar with a you know number of issues that are somewhat unique to small businesses. Great. Great. So, you know, lawyers are Expensive. And I hear that from a number of small firms, um, particularly kind of those those starting out. Why do I really need a lawyer? I don't have much risk. I don't have much uh, problem. Why? Why does someone need a lawyer and what can they do on their own without a lawyer as they're kind of at, at varying different points of their growth trajectory? When do they really, really need you? When should they bring you in, but maybe could get away with it? When can they do stuff on their own? Sure. I would say, and we'll probably talk about this later, the number one thing where you need a government contracts lawyer is if you want to bring a bid protest. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One being that there are some very strict timelines and deadlines. So if you're working with somebody who's doesn't do government contracts, there is a risk that you could miss those deadlines. Also, once you get to GAO, there are protective orders, which means you as the company cannot see most of the documents. So it would be very difficult to bring a lawyer into that. So, you know, there are dangers in in kind of each phase of growth in government contracting, you know, from from bid and proposal through execution as a sub, as a prime. But obviously, one of the trends, and you, you made reference to this before, one of the trends that is surprising to me, having been in government contracting now, gosh, 15 years, when we first started, nobody ever protested. It was the mm-hmm. Death now, you knew you were going to be PNG'd from that, that command or that government agency if you protested. And certainly if you protested something that wasn't overwhelmingly egregious. But in, in today's world, and I, I know that the data doesn't really fully back up that there's been such a huge change, but it certainly feels like There's been a huge sea change in the ability and willingness to go and bid protest for any time you don't you don't get uh, a contract. There's a large contract at SOCOM that just came out or in May with seven bid protests in the and the bid protest window hasn't even closed yet. There have been seven GAO protests that we know of as of yesterday. So. 
you know, that seems to be a, a huge trend. Am I, are the data backing that up, first of all? And, you know, if they are or if they aren't, why does it feel that way? Right, right. Well, first of all, I think with um, COVID and its impact, you're going to see even more protests mm-hmm. because everyone really wants that contract and they're not going to be willing to, you know, to let it just go by. Uh, number two, I think what this did. Statistics show, which is interesting, there are, you know, an increasing number of protests filed at GAO, but many of them settle out where the agency takes corrective action. So there are more protests than there are, for example, final decisions. So I think that's why it feels like there are more protests going around. And and really Um, incentivizes protests, right? Because if they're taking corrective action... Why would you put a protest in? Right, right. And one thing, you know, I'll say is that the larger agencies, DOD, for example, they expect protest. They, Mm -hmm. you know, they even put a peer that, you know, it's in their plan for execution of the contract, right? They think they give it themselves time for a protest. So I think that the fear that you'll get, you know, you'll get a bad reputation with your client is also not as prevalent as it used to be. Right. Some of the smaller agencies who aren't as used to, you know, contracting things out, uh, they may be more of a problem. Right, right. So, so the protest, and now I've been on this from both sides. So, uh, cause we did have to protest once. Thank you very much for your help. And we've been protested. And so to walk me through the bid protest process, because I think that's, it's not transparent to everyone what there's, there's very specific timeframes. There are very specific places you can protest and there are certain things you can't, there are certain contracts where you can't protest at all or under a certain level. So can you walk me through the protest 101? Sure, absolutely. So number one, the most important thing, if you get an award decision and you are not the awardee, you should ask for a debriefing right away. You've got three days to respond, but most companies send an email right away and say, we want a debriefing. And the debriefing is important from two perspectives. One, you know, it is the government will explain to or should explain why you were not awarded the contract. And they will go through your strengths and weaknesses. They will tell you who did win the contract. They will give you sort of bottom line uh, numbers for the awards. For that reason, we'll sometimes say to our clients, you were the awardee, but you might want to ask for a debriefing because you could always learn um, how to make your proposal better in the future. Mm-hmm. The second reason you want a debriefing is because it gives you perhaps more time to bring a protest. The best feature of both agency protests and GAO protests is that if you are within the time frame, the timelines, the deadlines, you can get an automatic stay of performance. Meaning if you protest on time, unless there's some kind of urgent and compelling circumstance, the agency has to stop what it's doing until the protest is decided. So the time periods are five days after your debriefing, or if you don't get a debriefing, 
10 days after notice of the award, and that will get you the automatic stay. So that's important. In terms of gathering information, the debriefing is also helpful because it will it will assist in determining whether you want to file a protest or not. I mean, you may go to the debriefing and, you know, the agency may tell you why you don't get the award and you think, you know what, they're probably right, mm-hmm. so there's no reason to protest, or it's a really close call, so there's no reason to protest. If you do think you've got, you know, a, a decent argument, the next decision point is where do you go with the protest? You can go back to the agency and file a protest, but if you do that, it's just um, you file a protest, the agency sends you back a letter saying, you know, yes, we agree or no, we don't agree. You don't get to see any additional documents, mm-hmm. et cetera. I think agency protests are probably more fruitful if they are pre-award protests. In other words, you think that the language of the solicitation is, you know, either ambiguous or there's an issue with it. In a sense, it's a way to give the agency a chance to correct itself. Um, Sort of the next level up is the protests at the GAO, which are by far the most numerous. So, when you file a protest at GAO, the agency has to uh, produce what's called an agency report, and it'll be a, a memorandum explaining why they are defending the award decision, plus all of the documents that the agency relied on in making the awards. Um, that's a good decision point, too, because one of the things we'll tell our clients is, look, you know, there's definitely a colorable claim here. Let's file the protest. When we get the agency report and review it, we will let you know, you know, yes, we should go forward or no, the documents in the agency report, um, you know, strongly support what the agency did. So you can dismiss the protest at, at that point. Um, if you decide to go forward, then you do the same thing. You write a brief that comments on the agency report, and then GAO sometimes will ask for more briefing, or in very, very rare cases, they will have a hearing. That's a trend we see. The number of hearings has definitely gone down. Mm-hmm. And then GAO must give an opinion, must make a decision within 100 days of you are filing the protest. That's 100 working days. So it's about three months. So you, you know, can get a stay of uh, an award for up to three months if you go to GAO. Mm-hmm. The third place you can go is the Court of Federal Claims. You don't get the automatic stay there. You have to ask the court for a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction, which is a higher burden of proof, and it involves more briefings and potentially a hearing. So um, at, at the Court of Federal Claims or COPSI, the protest costs are much higher uh, than the other two places to go. Right. So one of the things that we've seen work well and we've we've done ourselves, I think, in consultation with you a couple of times, is we've had open and frank discussions or frank and open discussions prior to filing. You know, it's almost like, hey, 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 we might we might file a protest. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a pain in your tush. Why don't we talk bluntly about this beforehand? And we've actually, we ourselves have seen that happen where, you know, somebody 
misread something uh, and it's a fairly easy, clear thing, or you've awarded it to someone who is ineligible. In fact, there was there was one time we did where it was on what used to be Mobis, now PSS. It was an OCONUS contract and they awarded it to someone that didn't have overseas delivery. And so we went back to them and said, please don't make us file this. Please don't make mm-hmm. us file a protest. You clearly did not do the right thing here. I mean, said it much nicer than that, probably. Uh, but hey, you probably didn't notice that there is an OCONUS and they're not allowed to do OCONUS delivery. And they went, oops, you're right. We're going to pull that award. And, and in, you know, in that case, we were the next one in line and we knew that from the debriefing. So those are those are options as well. Right. And have you seen those? Are, are we weird in the fact that we've been able to to have that work well? Or is that is that somewhat typical? Yeah, I would say it's somewhat typical. Um, often the debriefing is actually where that give and take might happen. Mm-hmm. Or after the debriefing, you come back and you say, look, you know, during the debriefing, you told us X, Y, Z, and that's not what our proposal says. And, and here we are. And, you know, we'll have to file a protest if, you know, if we have to, but we would prefer not to. So can we sort of think about this? And then the agency, you know, some, instances will at that point you know admit it admit its mistake and take some action and it also uh, helps them avoid the cost the time of defending a a bid protest Mm -hmm. and I think and I also think that the agencies um, appreciate it for example, I've also had clients who um, lost a procurement, but they'd made the decision not to protest, but they did go in and talk to the agency and say, you know, this is why we think you were wrong. You may or may not agree, but we just wanted to let you know that, you know, this is what we were thinking, but we're not going to protest. Right. And I think that's, you know, appreciated too. Right. Right. So, so out of a protest, and I think this is something that is a, misunderstood by a whole lot of people before they've gotten far enough into this this world you don't get if if they made a mistake the best you can get is a reconsideration you don't get gao or even copsy and certainly the agency protest doesn't say you get the award even if they've done something egregious it's not saying here you know protester we're taking the award from the, the the awardee and we're giving it to you, right? Right, right. And that's that's exactly right, because I think a lot of companies go in with the misconception that a win means they get the contract. What a win typically means is the agency goes back and reevaluates or the agency opens up the competitive range or the agency has to fix its solicitation and, and go out. Uh, for bids again. And of course, the risk there, if there's a reevaluation, is that the agency can, you know, come to the same conclusion it came to before. So you won't necessarily, um, you know, you find yourself in the same position having spent a bucket of money. So that's, you know, definitely something to consider when you're thinking about a protest. And speaking of money and kind of <laughs> how much this costs. Mm-hmm. Obviously, agency protest is the least expensive GAO and then COFSI, but do you have any range of averages for how much that generally can cost? 
sure. And, you know, when you talk about doing things with your client, um, in drafting the protest, will the initial protest will definitely rely on the client or the company mm-hmm. to do a lot of the drafting, especially the technical drafting. So that'll save some costs. But, you know, once you're into the protest, because of the protective order, only lawyers outside counsel can see the documents. So you're kind of um, hampered in terms of talking to your client or getting their assistance. So, you know, these days, a GAO protest, I hate to say it, but it's usually somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000. Mm-hmm. And that is dependent on how much information GAO wants to see. Um, after you've submitted your filing to GAO, your comments on the agency report, uh, GAO will sometimes, you know, come back and say, you know, I'm not sure about this. Can you guys submit additional briefs? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's going to increase your cost. So I I think that's a safe, you know, that's a safe range to think about. And, And then, Court of Federal Claims, COPSI is um, typically more expensive because the briefing is more extensive and there's often a hearing mm-hmm. um, or at least an oral argument um, in a COPSI proceeding. Right, so, right. You know. uh, and technically you can do it without a lawyer. Well, I don't, not COPSI probably, but, but GAO or the agency, you can do it without a, a lawyer up to a point. And technically you can. But there's there's a problem in doing that, right, with the uh, protective order? Sure, absolutely. I think you can probably do it without a lawyer more successfully if you're protesting the terms of the solicitation itself because you're not getting into what people are proposing. If you're challenging the evaluation, the record will include, you know, your proposal and potentially the proposal of the awardee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, looking down the road, if um, there is a recompetition, obviously, you don't, I mean, you would love to see your um, uh, <laughs> your competitor's proposal, but if you do it, it could knock you out of the procurement. So at that point, if you were on your own and didn't have an attorney, you would not be able to see most of the documents that the agency produces. And even in terms of the briefs, they would have to be redacted for mm-hmm. you to see them. Mm-hmm. So anything that's meaningful would be redacted. And you would have a hard time even just determining what the agency is actually arguing. Right. Right. That makes sense. And something I learned when when our big award got got protested as a a awardee or a I guess a ostensible awardee at that point, you can actually get your own lawyer and help defend the award with the government. Right. If, so if, if you right. get a great award that you're really excited about and you think it's solid and you think it's right and, you know, one or two or 10 or 30 other bidders protest this, you have as a as in, an interested party the ability to to weigh in as well. That's right. That's right. You can intervene and there's a range of intervention. You know, we recommend that the awardee always intervene. And the reason is that is that your lawyers at least will have access to everything that's being filed. Mm -hmm. So if there's a particular problem area, they can identify it. 
or as you say, you could be a lot more proactive and talk to the agency and see if they need help in certain areas and provide them assistance and also file your own brief, which would shore up the arguments that the agency's making to uh, sustain the award. Right. So right. It's, it's a pretty valuable tool. So in the, in the statistics, what are the outcomes at uh, the agency level, the GAO level, and the COFSI level. Uh, it used to be that that basically there was no reason to do a protest. Also, you 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 became the persona non grata, but you also didn't really ever get relief. Or it, again, it, it, that's what it seemed, or that was kind of the the conventional wisdom. There's a couple of different pieces of relief that you can get, as we talked about. There's actual ruling for you, but there's also the agency can can choose to to do something voluntarily through the, the process. What are the what are the statistics for getting some sort of relief or getting, you know, GAO say ruling in, in your favor? Right, right. They're actually pretty good at GAO, not getting a ruling in your favor. They're much better at getting some type of corrective action. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say it's about 40% of GAO protests either have a decision in favor of the protester or there's some corrective action. So, wow. um, you, you know, it's much larger than it used to be. Wow. Um, 40%? I think yeah, I think that's right. Now, again, the corrective action may not, you know, go your way. Right. But, you know, that's really that those are the percentage of protests that don't go to a full decision. Right. Um, but, yeah, although I would caution that the trend that at least we are seeing is that it is now getting harder to prevail on a GAO protest. And more, there's an increased number of protesters who are going to the court of, of federal claims, hoping uh-huh. to get a, you know, a better result. And one of the reasons for that too is that if you're a GAO, the agency lawyer is defending the protest. If you're at the court of federal claims, a Department of Justice lawyer who's, you know, right. maybe more objective will be on the government side and maybe easier to, to speak with in terms of, you know, coming up with a settlement. Right. That that actually does make sense. We've uh, we've seen the the switch of lawyers uh, on some other stuff that we've seen be really in fact from SBA and and uh, some applications there that that once DOJ gets involved, they may be maybe a little more objective. So that kind right. of makes sense. Right. So so now it makes sense as to why so many more bids are going under protest if 40%-ish are having some relief. Now, that doesn't mean it's the relief you want. It doesn't mean you're going to get the the bid. And it's still more likely than not that you're going to end up not getting the, the eventual award. But even so, that's really different than the numbers that we were seeing 10, 15 years ago when it was in the single digits from what I remember. 
Right. Now, I, the the number of sustained protests is still pretty low. Right. I'm thinking less than 20 percent, probably more like 15, 16, 14. Right. But that number of resolutions has been going higher. And I think, you know, to your point, you know, thinking used to be, you know, reluctance to bring a protest um, in more cases than not. Nowadays, the attitude is why not bring a protest? Right. You know. Why not? I mean, there are a lot of reasons why not to do it, but if you sort of start from the premise that you're going to bring a protest. Right. Right. Work yeah. back from there. It's amazing how many that the, the, the protest is now part of the procurement milestone um, yep. kind of planning is amazing to me. We literally in, in talking to contracting officers, you know, prior to a bid coming out in, in even in industry days where they put the procurement timeline up, there is built in a, a protest window. Yeah. Uh, That's which exactly makes, right. Yeah. And really, I'm wondering if that invites more, pro- you know, a chicken and egg, does it invite more protests or is it smart just because you know, you're going to get them no matter what. And so you've got to be able to, to work around it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. They just know, okay, you know, we can expect that there's going to be a protest so that we can't actually start work until, you know, X day as opposed to sooner. Well, and there's some good reason even for, uh, we've seen this over and over again, for the incumbents who didn't win and know they can't win and know there's no real grounds for protest to protest solely to delay the the start of the the new award, right? I mean, that's one of the other reasons to bring protests. And we've seen right. small businesses backed by large businesses where the, the large business, the incumbent, is funding it just because they'll, right. they'll get more of the, the time. And some of these with large awards, you're talking millions of dollars. So right. thousand, a hundred thousand right. doesn't matter to them comparatively to just getting the delay. That's correct. But I think, you know, there is a danger in that specific instance of getting a reputation with the agency mm-hmm. that you will file a protest that you know is going to lose just to get the three months or so. And, you know, you don't want to be known as that type of a, of a company. Right. But again, if, if you've got a colorable basis for a protest, then, you know, again, why not? Right. 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 So, um, so any uh, any last advice for anyone who is looking at this, looking at a protest, either from the 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 winner side or the loser side? Any last words of advice for them around the bid protest process? My advice would be, you know, get as much information as you can before you make your decision. Um, you know, you can also hire a law firm just to give you an evaluation. No commitments that you have to file a protest, <laughs> but sort of, you know, based on our experience, this type of protest is successful. It's not successful. Here's what you need to be looking at, because that, I think, is key, because it'll help you, um, you know, not throw good money after bad if mm-hmm. there's no grounds to bring a protest. But it will also um, shore up your thinking if you find out 
out it is a, a good ground. Mm-hmm. So if you can get as you want to get as much out of the debriefing as you possibly can, although some agencies are more forthcoming than others. Sure, sure. Yeah, some the of them key. are definitely locked down. Right. All right. Well, if somebody wants to talk to you about this, and I can vouch for Mary Beth, um, who has walked us through countless difficult situations uh, over the years around protests, but also around all sorts of other things. Um, so I can I can personally vouch for Mary Beth and her not only know how, but her calm demeanor and her ability to keep <laughs> us out of, uh, out of out of out of trouble. How do they get to you? Sure. Um, my email is marybeth.bosco, that's B-O-S-C-O, at hklaw.com. And the office number is 202-469-5270, and that rings through to my cell phone. And if you forget all that, you can go on the Holland and Knight website, uh, look me up, and all of my contact information will be there as well. And the other thing I would say is Holland and Knight puts out some great products. So once you're on their client list, we are getting all sorts of covid Government contracting COVID stuff, for example, um, we get uh, access to to webinars and to in-person meetings that are free um, that really do help kind of get you righted, get your feet on the ground as a business coming into the the GovCon space. So definitely make sure that you are signed up for those regardless um, and that you have right. that relationship with a government contract lawyer before you actually need it, because when you need it, these mm-hmm. these deadlines are really quick as well. Right. That's true. That's true. Mary Beth, thank you sure. so much for this. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate, like I said, your calm demeanor in all of this. Uh, it, it is incredibly helpful to have a smart government contracts lawyer in your back pocket and and we've been lucky to have you so thank you well thanks that's very nice to say and i really enjoyed this thanks